0: This morning, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 13 through 19. Let me read the passage for us, and then we will walk through this together. Paul writes and says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than ten thousand words in a tongue. So we're continuing uh, over the course of four weeks, chapter fourteen, and breaking it down and really looking at how Paul is giving us some careful instruction for the implementation of spiritual gifts within the body. And what you, what I hope you see anyway, is that over the course of this instruction, these four weeks is that Paul seems to be primarily concerned that we build up other people in the church. right? So a significant portion of what it looks like for you to be a church member, for you to be a Christian, for you to be involved and invested in a local fellowship, is that you might spend your time, spend your energy being involved and invested in the lives of those around you, making Jesus more pronounced in their lives, helping their faith To be more full so that if their faith is more full so that they might in turn uh, work in the lives of others and so on and so forth. And so Paul is expressly describing how we interact as it turns to the use of spiritual tongues within corporate worship. And so this week we look at as Paul kind of begins to talk about what it is to use our minds in the midst of worship as opposed to just being led by the Spirit only. Now look back at verse 12 in chapter 14. This leads into the therefore that we find in verse 13. We got back in verse 12, he says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So basically the point that he's making is this, since you guys are so eager that the Spirit moves, since you're so eager that all these things uh, be at work there, excel, do really, really well, uh, do fantastically well seeking to build up the church. So then this conversation rolls in the mind of the one who engages in speaking in tongues. And he says, well, if if this is primarily for me, in terms of speaking in tongues, if I'm being built up when I engage in this process, how can I possibly build up those around me when I'm using my spiritual gift? And so Paul gives them the answer to that in verse 13. Simply, they should pray that they be able to interpret. Now, we've seen in the previous passage when he says... That when somebody speaks in tongues, someone else has to interpret. But here he turns and he says, If you're the one engaged in this action, engaged in this process, this display of God's spiritual touch on your life, you need to pray that you'd interpret. Now, I think this is teaching us a couple of different things about spiritual gifts. One, the spiritual gifts seem to be that which God has given you for a time for the good of those around you. Now, what do I mean by that? The spiritual gifts God has given you in salvation aren't yours kind of for the rest of your life necessarily. It seems to be that what God is doing is giving us gifts for a time for the express purpose of building up those around you. So, as you change churches, as you change friend groups, as the people around you need changes, it could be that God would give you a different gift for the use in those people's lives. Now, what's the consistent thread in that? The consistent thread in that is that you're constantly being used for the benefit of those around you, right? And so if you've lived any number of places, if you've had friend groups change because they've moved, you'll notice that different people have different needs, right? Is that a fair statement? Different people have different needs, and different people have different spiritual needs, and different churches have different spiritual needs within the cycle of a church. So as churches grow, their needs change. As churches shrink, their needs change. As we enter into different seasons, and so a season of, of uh, just, just jovialness or a season of sadness, we've lost some significant member. We're, we're changing in the way that we minister to our community. We need different things from our members, right? I mean, it just makes sense. And so this is the way that God is doing this. So God turns to this person who has the gift of tongues. And he says, look, you need to pray that you may interpret. Now, this is decidedly different than the person who just looks at it and says, what's the coolest thing I could ever do? Man, that's got to be walking on water. That doesn't seem to be for me. So what's the second coolest thing I could ever do? That seems to be speaking in tongues. I'm going to pray that I could speak in tongues, and I just dedicate morning, noon, and night to this. Now, if my, sole object, if my sole object, the sole purpose of my prayer is to make me feel really good about myself, that I might be built up, that I might be more secure in myself, and that I could show off my gifting to others, I think God looks at that and says, bro, I'm not going to honor that request. I'm not going to honor that request because the heart of it is rooted in selfishness, not selfless investment in others. And so when he says here, you need to pray that you may interpret, notice the, the, the humble heart of the person who does this. The sole reason that they should pray that they could interpret is so that they might be maximally impactful in the lives of those around them. So I think it is good and useful potentially for you to turn and to pray that God would give you certain spiritual gifts. Now, our tendency is to pray for those things that make us feel good, to make us pray for those things that draw attention to ourselves, and certainly we see a corrective in this, because Paul is only directing us to pray for those things that have a direct benefit in those around us. look at what he goes on to say. This This is why we need to pray, that we be impactful and beneficial for those around us. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now this creates a significant issue for us. A number of years ago, when Valerie and I were in college, she attended a church that was just a scotch more charismatic than the church I attended. By a scotch more charismatic, I mean people cutting backflips in the aisles. So just just a little bit more, right? We had people walking in the aisles, they had people flipping in the aisles. And I always thought that was great, but I could never do a flip. And so she's there and she's attending this worship service and she's not speaking in tongues. And this lady turns around at the end of the service, she says, hi, my name's so-and-so, it's very good to meet you. I've noticed that throughout the entirety of this service, not a single time have you spoken in tongues. And my, my wife, then girlfriend, said, yes, that's of course uh, correct. You're, you're wonderfully astute. Thank you so much for observing that. And she says, look, I can solve this for you. Would you like to meet for coffee this week? And I can teach you how to do this so that the next time we're together, you can just ugly gibbly gobbly with the best of us. And she says, no, no, thank you. Because this lady in her mind saw tongues and I would say that she rolls around and thinks that different spiritual gifts are learned disciplines instead of being divine investments. If they're learned disciplines, then there's anything I can learn, right? Well, there are a number of things like like long division that I'm not so great at, but there are any number of things that I can learn. But certainly we would say that tongues and these other things are not learned, but they are divine investments. Paul says here in the midst of this person, Speaking in tongues praying to God in a language he has given them that it's his spirit speaking through them And so their minds not directing the discourse, but it is God directing the discourse Glorifying himself and drawing them closer to him in the midst of their communication And this is what's taking place and this is why he says my mind is unfruitful And just imagine that within the context of corporate worship uh, Dale stands up and he begins to speak in tongues and no one interprets. He's being built up and he's saying, this is so glorious, I feel so close to God. And everybody looks at him and says, what's he on about? What exactly is he saying? And Dale sits down and he's you know, none the wiser and he says, oh, this is just great. I had a little communion time with God. And we're all saying, well, that's just a scotch more charismatic than I'm comfortable with. So Paul asks the question, he says, what am I to do? And this is the heart of it. Look what he says. He says, I will pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I'll sing praise with my spirit, but I'll sing praise with my mind also. Paul shows us this wonderful uh, combination of engaging our minds with the movement and purposes of God's spirit. Now I'll tell you, and I think scripture backs me up on this, that it, within the confines of corporate worship, the only place that speaking in tongues have is if it is matched with interpretation. So we have a brother or sister who's gifted in tongues, and we have a brother or sister who's gifted to interpret. That's the only legitimate time that we see that used. And so Paul's making this argument here. He says, look, I recognize there's no place for speaking in tongues outside its interpretation in worship. So I will pray with my spirit, and he seems to be suggesting he's going to do that privately. And then when it turns to corporate, he says, and I'll pray with my mind. Then he turns to singing. He turns to engaging in worship through, through singing backed up by musical accompaniment. He says, I'm going to do this with my spirit and my mind also. Now, Jesus had a conversation with a woman in John 4 where they're talking expressly about worship. Do you remember this? He meets the, the woman at the well. Who, there are a number of disparaging comments that, that have been made about. But he meets this woman who's out there for some reason. And in verse 19, it says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our, our people, our, our folks worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. She says, look, we, we worship on this mountain. Jews worship over there. She's inviting Jesus into the midst of this theological debate. Look what he does. He pulls worship away from, from location-centric understanding. He says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. See this understanding. Now when most of us walk in, Right? And this seems to be the preoccupation of kind, of kind of white evangelical worship. When most of us walk in the door, if we're given a choice of whether or not we want our worship more spirit-filled or more mindful, we would likely say we want it more spirit-filled, but inside we're dying and say we really just want it to be just a scotch, more charismatic than last week, but not, not just kind of otherworldly. And really what we're more comfortable with What we're most at home with is engagement of the mind and the mind alone. We like things that make good logical sense, that progress nicely, and that finish timely. And this is kind of a lot of what we're looking for in the midst of a worship set. Amen? Now you feel embarrassed and awkward, right? If he knows we don't like long services, does that make him preach shorter or longer? I don't know. I'm going to be real honest with you. I've never tested that one. Let's, Let's give it a shot. Nervous laughter is my favorite. (laughs) It's this idea that that when we came in, you know, uh, are we going to engage with our spirit or are we going to engage with our mind and our default? I say over and over and over again. And and it's lived out not just in the confines of worship. It's lived it out in how we make decisions. We're much more comfortable engaging with our minds and our minds alone. But Jesus seems not to give us an opportunity for that. And speaking to this one with the well, he, he first removes the, the boundary of location, and then he mo- removes this boundary of what is impeding her in worship. He refers to it as something that is remarkably intimate, that we could know and worship and experience God. And I would say that if you're a Christian, if you're a person who's been united to Jesus by faith in the shed blood of the Son, and you've come to know him, and his spirit has taken up residence within inside you, then when you set to worship, his spirit delights in singing praise back to the Father, in leading you in that engagement, in leading you in that prayer. But he also delights in seeing your mind, the thing that he has given you, come to life. So when we sing uh, that that it's in the power, that it's in the love of Christ I stand, his delight and his expectation is that you would spend time in careful meditation on that refrain. And begin to think through, what does it look like this week uh, that I was living in famine? What does it look like this week that I was suffering in drought? I I, I never hungered and I, I never went thirsty for very long before I found a big gulp. And so what does it look like practically within the confines of my life to have experienced those things and even in the midst of difficulty to rest in Him? And that's a work of our mind. That's a good work of our mind. Another good work of our mind is to look at the people around you and to recognize how God has positioned you so that you might be at work in their lives. And this requires an investment of you, being led by his spirit, being methodical in how you move through and address it according to your mind. We recognize that outside of God's spirit and the movement in him, we are entrapped and imprisoned. Engaging in a worship that is nothing more than empty logic and singing words. Empty words repeated back to him because we recognize, according to Second Corinthians 3.17, that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen? Do we want to be a free people? Or do we want to be a people enslaved and given only to the logic of those things that make sense? Because I'll tell you that there are any number of things that God might lead us to that make very little sense. Make very little sense. That in the providence of God, that he might surround you with people whose needs are far greater than your ability to take on. But still within the providence of God and his good care for those around you, that he might burden your heart for those people. That God would burden your heart for people you've never met. That in the strangeness and in the otherworldliness of our God, that in the midst of corporate worship in Greenville, Texas, God might lay on your heart a people you've never met, never heard of. But you know that as you reflect upon it, the only faithful thing for you to do is to sell everything and to go and to minister to those people. This is what it is to worship Him in spirit. And then He allows our mind to gather with Him in this deal that we might excite others to this, that we might share the plan, the providence of God, how he desires to use us, and that we might call them alongside us to join God in reaching the nations for his glory. Of course there's always the possibility that as you walked in these doors, you you came in either spirit filled nor mindful. You came in here with a blank slate. Because church for you has become nothing more than a rote routine that you engage weekly coming in, you sit here, your mind a complete blank. We go on and on and on. You stand, you sit, you smile, you leave. But you miss it the whole time. You miss an opportunity to be led by his spirit. You miss an opportunity for his spirit to awaken new life in you. And you miss an opportunity to engage the wonderful mind that he's given you. Don't be blank. Don't be so spiritually driven that you divorce the ability to engage your mind. Don't be so logic driven that you refuse to be led by his spirit and you seem to tug the spirit along to the carefully confined constructed and crafted boxes that you've allowed the Spirit to reside. The Spirit has a terrible habit of destroying these wonderful boxes that we create, right? This is kind of what we do. God, these are the ways that I'm willing to serve you, and so here's this box. I'm just going to set it nicely right here, and God, yeah, here, here are these ways that I'm willing to serve you over here. And at some point in the future, God, uh, maybe perhaps I'm willing to go on a local a local mission trip, a local Inexpensive mission trip, God, and so I'm just going to place this right here. And God's just like, bing, bing, bing. Give me another box. Yeah, okay, so here's this local. You'll have a wonderfully impoverished relationship with God if you're constantly constructing boxes for a spirit to live in. You'll have a wonderfully vibrant, beautiful life full of potential suffering that is completely honoring to God. If you'll uh, completely absolve yourself, remove from yourself the possibility of creating boxes that his spirit was never designed to live in. But instead, you'd seek to live a faithful life to him, doing whatever he sets before you. We need to be those who worship him, who sing to him, and are led by his spirit and engaged in our mind. Now, Paul talks about within the confines there of Corinth, what this is looking like in the midst of their worship. He says, if you have this person and they're only ever being led by their spirit in the midst of this, they're they're completely divorced everybody around them. They don't really care what's happening to the people around them because for them, worship is an individualized expression and experience, not to be interrupted or impeded by the busyness and necessity of the people around them. He says, otherwise, if you're in the midst of this and you're not doing spirit, you're engaging your mind as well, otherwise... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? So this is the situation, right? So we're all, we're all gathered here together, and, and, and some brother or sister stands up, and they begin to engage in private communion and conversation with God. And, and we've had someone come in, and he uses the term outsider. So somebody who is somewhat familiar with the goings-on of the church, and so they know the normal cadence and organization of the thing. They know when to stand, they know when to sit, they know when to politely shake hands, and they know when to pass the plate to the person beside them. And so they're familiar with the operation of the church, but they are not familiar with this speaking in tongues. They don't know what the person is saying, so they find themselves outside of the umbrella or outside of the understanding of what's transpiring. He says, this is the situation. Brother or sister stands up, they begin to speak in tongues, and you have this person who doesn't know what in the world's going on, and so they're sending their thing, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready. Eh, no, no, I'm ready, I'm ready. Eh. And they want to join into the prayer, but they can't. They want to join into the prayer, but they can't. You know, different churches and different cultures have different experiences of this. And some of us might get to experience this uh, at different points in our life on a, a non-local mission trip. But what he's talking about within the context of this is this person doesn't merely want the prayer to end, and this is largely how we use amen, isn't it? When somebody says amen, it means it's time to eat. When somebody says amen, it's time to finally get to go home. When somebody says amen, uh, our palms are done sweating and it's our turn to pray, right? And so this is largely kind of how we use the word amen. Now amen is not expressly just a Greek word, but it's the transliteration of a Hebrew expression. So I want us to just kind of see the intensity of what this person is waiting for. They're not just waiting for the prayer to end, they're waiting their ability, their opportunity to engage in this prayer. Now in Nehemiah 8, in Nehemiah 8, Ezra is preparing to read the law and says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they had heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early in the morning until midday. Does that sound like fun? And in the presence of the men and the women and all those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They're engaging their minds. They're engaging their minds. Ezra is up there and he's speaking, and the whole time they're thinking, I hear this, this is how I apply it. I hear this, this is how I apply it. I hear this, I scrawl this down, this is how I can apply it. So he's flanked with brothers on his right and on his left. And verse 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he stood above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered and said, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. When Ezra finishes reading, Everybody's broken because they've heard the law, and the law has been a reflection to them of their, ina- their inability to keep it, right? He's exposed the inner idolatries of their hearts. He showed them their great need for God to be merciful and gracious. And as they hear that, they can't sit back apathetically. They can't help but join in and worship him And so their response is, amen, amen. In essence, essence, we heartily agree. We concur, we believe, we agree. So Paul's describing here. He said, you've got this brother or sister who stands up, and, and they're going on and on and on, and all the time this person is being made really to feel like an outsider. They're being made to feel like a person who's not a part of this worship, because they can't join in the prayer even our prayers are wonderful opportunities to allow those around us to be impacted as we commune with God and communicate with God and all the while this person wants to join in to the Thanksgiving but he has no idea what is saying I think inadvertently we find that churches do this over and over again with insider language Southern Baptists are especially good at this by by giving everything an acronym. When we meet with people routinely, I'm like, oh, yeah, so we're part of an SBC church. We support the ERLC, the IMB, the NAMB, and they're like, what is the deal with you? Are you unable to articulate long names of things? And we quite simply, honestly say, yeah, that's what it is. And we're creating obstacles and impediments to people being able to engage and follow through and in involvement with the church. And so we have to be, as a point of practical application, we have to be careful that we're not using insider language to ostracize and keep people from being able to be invited and involved within the life of the church. He says, you've got this guy here, this person, and they're not able to join in with a thanksgiving. Verse 17, concessively, he, he, he writes, he says, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. There are times and opportunities for private expression of worship. And man, I, I hope you have that. I hope you have such an incredibly vibrant expression of worship on your own that you're growing closer and closer to God every day. And then in growing closer and closer to God each and every day, you have opportunities to pour into the lives of those around you. Because God is pouring his spirit into you, you're refreshed and renewed and ready to pour into the lives of those around you. But in the context of corporate worship here, in the context of how this works and how a church works, our primary occupation should be that we are pouring into and building up those around you. So when you think about it, as parents, our our thoughts most immediately run to our children, but they cannot stop there right? Lest our children become little idols. Better, better that we show our children what it looks like for us to value people around us who are not immediately beneficial to us. People who are costly. People who, by, by virtue of having them in our lives, it exacts a costly toll. Difficult people. We need them in our lives. Now, this is not how to find a difficult person, right? You look like a troubled soul. Would you come be my difficult person? <laughs> Awkward, nervous laughter. Right? But, but the more we find ourselves invested in the lives of those around us, the more readily we'll find ourselves running into encountering people that are difficult because they're in different stages of their lives. And, and, and when we find them, we have opportunities to encourage them to grow in their faith. And, and lo and behold, some of you are going to find yourselves being the recipient of somebody walking up and saying, you are a difficult person. Would you mind if, if, if we hung out a little bit? Now here, listen, don't be offended. You are a difficult person. You need them as a friend. You don't have very many. And so let them, let them take you on. Engage with them. Allow them to help you to be built up. And and be be certain and be assured rather that they will fail in this endeavor And this allows you to move beyond being such a difficult person and to help them Church has has a possibility of being a wonderfully beautiful thing. It really does It, It really stands the possibility of being a wonderfully beautiful thing, but oftentimes it's ruined on our personalities and on our best attempts We alienate the heck out of people you think that's true have you experienced that Have you ever visited a, a church or maybe you're, you're back you're visiting this church because you finally forgotten how awkward it was the last time you were here <clears throat> <laughs> maybe I shouldn't head down that road <laughs> then I remember when Valerie and I um, we were working with the pastor search team and, and we visited Ridgecrest and we wanted to do so incognito and so we just did a you know google directions we drove over and it directed us to park over there by alliance bank which used to be the the lonely abandoned entrance uh, if you were here before and so we walked in behind those wooden doors and there was nobody there and there was just a lectern there with with a bulletin from like two or three weeks uh, prior and some cobwebs and so it was one of those well this is super welcoming they've planned for our uh attendance a couple of weeks ago that's great Maybe they should put one out for two weeks ahead, and and, and that would be even better. And so we came in, and and what we found was over and over again how just incredibly warm and inviting people were. But there was a possibility for us to judge our whole experience on an outdated bulletin and and I think probably uh, a lectern that looked a lot like this one, right? We had like a million of these things. It warmed my house all winter. And so... And so, but when we had an opportunity to meet the people of the church, it was wonderfully warm and inviting. Sure, there were some people who said, he's the most awkward person I've ever met. Man, I pray to God that's not our pastor coming to visit. And, and that's okay. They're no longer here. <laughs> Often. And so, what we see within this is that each of us has a terrific opportunity to engage in building up the people of the church, and we just have to move beyond ourselves, to be personally warm and inviting. And I believe that we can be personally warm and inviting if we direct people not to our personality, but direct people to our Lord, amen? And that our conversation will be seasoned and and populated with references to Christ and what he's doing in our lives, that we would share our personal struggles, that we would share our personal difficulties, and thereby doing, inviting people in to know us and to know Jesus more prominently in their lives. Now, Paul turns in verse 18, and he wants them to understand that although they think themselves secure and just kind of like the creme de la creme when it comes to speaking in tongues, Paul says, hey, listen, you got to know something about me. I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he's putting them, in some sense, in their place. And he wants them to understand that even though it plays a prominent role within his life, when it comes to his investment in the local church, he makes it take a back seat to building up other people around him, right? That's what he says. He says, even though I speak it more than any of you in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. Five words. Paul would rather be short, direct, and to the point, so that he might instruct others than in 10,000 words building himself up. When you begin to think about your own personal expression of faith in Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I had you just kind of write down, man, these are my spiritual gifts. And as you reflect upon those spiritual gifts, there are things that as you do them, as you engage in the use of them, that naturally lend towards building you up more. You tend to feel better about yourself when you use them. And I think this is something God has designed and given to you so that you might grow closer to him and so that you might enjoy growing closer to him. But it can't stop there. It can't stop there. God's full design and his full plan and purpose for the spiritual gifts, the talents and abilities beyond that that he has given to you is for their active involvement and investment in the lives of those around you. So husband, God has gifted you, and he's also given you certain failures. He's gifted you for the active investment and involvement in your wife, and he's given you certain failures for her active involvement and investment in your life. And the same goes the other way. God has introduced certain difficulties into your friend group, into your colleagues' lives, into the lives of the people on the pews beside you, to your left, to your right, in front of you, and behind you. And he's invited those difficulties into their lives, and he's put you into their lives so that you might help them by the equipping power of his spirit. So when you begin to think through the two or three, or four or five, maybe you're phenomenally gifted, list of spiritual gifts that you currently have, and you begin to look and think through the the friend group that you have and the problems they're going through, God is asking you and directing you to use your mind to remember their problem and by the power of His Spirit to come together for the equipping and the building up of the church. Will you be useful? Will you be impactful? Will you build up the church? Or will you merely choose To build up yourself. Let me pray for us. Father God we thank you for your goodness. For an opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. Father I pray that. You would guide us. In that exercise. That you would be glorified in our worship. That we would be. Phenomenally impactful in the lives of those around us as we are led by your spirit As we're thinking with the mind that you have given us So God as a church, I pray right now that for each of us that you would burden our hearts Help us to think of one or two in our lives or in this church We know their problems we know their situation And God, in your spirit, would you burden us to use the gifts that you have given us for for them? That they might be built up. God, for those of us who are still just praying through and and wondering, what what gift has he given me? What has he helped me to trust him in? God, that by your spirit you would be informing us and growing us in those gifts. Father God, we pray for those who have yet to surrender their lives to you. They see themselves as phenomenally talented. They see themselves as hopelessly talentless. But all those things melt away with their great need for Jesus. Father, that they would see in Jesus the hope of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the one who has come to take away the sin of the world, the Lamb of God. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for an opportunity to worship you by the power of your spirit in the name of the Son today. We ask you continue to guide us in spirit and in truth. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.